Our text is found in Matthew chapter 24, and it's verses 29 to 35. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of God. Join me in prayer. My wife and I, on various occasions, I don't know if you're like us, but every now and then we pick up on some rerun on Netflix, some old television series that we heard was good, and every now and then we'll say, let's you know, watch this tonight or that. Um, so we'll enjoy sometimes those down times together where we can rest and just enjoy, enjoy each other's company and maybe a bowl of popcorn together. Um, the trouble, though, is that when you do do this, you know that it's easy, um, especially with reruns, it's easy to, if, if an episode of some show leaves you hanging, it's very easy to go online and find out what happens before, you know, you don't have to wait till nine episodes later to see what happens at the end of the story. You just want to know the end. Now, now God bless my wife, but she is notorious for doing this. Um, she always likes to sneak to the end of the book. Are you like that too? Um, when you're reading a good book and you want to know what happens at the end, so you flip to the, the and I've done it too, we flip to the, to the end of the book, to the last chapter. We just can't wait to see what's going to happen. When I was a kid, now just to um, get my wife off the hook, and I'm in trouble now, but um, when I was a kid, I used to do this thing every so often. I don't know if my mom even knows this, but every so often. Um, but before Christmas, I would find the gifts wrapped under the bed or in the closet or hidden somewhere. And, um, and our, my, mom, my mother, if you know my mother, she's very efficient and she's very organized. So, so she, many things are done ahead of time. So my point that I'm getting at is our names were even on these things. So I would find this, and little, you know, nine-year-old Kyle would find two Kyle, and I just couldn't wait, so I would unwrap them. Um, not all of them, maybe just the heavy one. And, but, if it, but if I found the shoes, I might pick another one to open to see if there was a toy in it or something. But then I would carefully, like with surgeon's skill, open this thing so that I wouldn't rip the paper or the tape. There would be no evidence left behind. So I, I, would, I would find out. I just had to know what was in that. And then I would rewrap it and slide it back under the bed, and no one was the wiser except me. Sort of ruined it, though. Um, we live life at times like this, don't we? Even as adults. We, we, we sort of are pining to be married, or maybe we're single, and we just wonder, who is it going to be? And we want to know. We want to know our future, don't we? Um, sometimes the unknowns of life drive us nuts and give us anxiety. So we, even as adults, these sorts of behaviors and wanting to know the future before it comes is, is, a, is a habit of us human beings. Now the Bible, um, from start to finish, 
is concerned to tell us how the end comes and what the future is. The Bible actually gives us a window, a peek into things to come. It wants to let us know how human history ends. And while much of the life to come, I think, remains a mystery, even in Scripture, the Bible doesn't tell us everything, um, the Bible, though, almost seems to be written because God wants us to know what's to come. He wants us to know the future, what's in store. It's so important, it's so vital to your life and to mine that the Bible almost seems to be written exclusively for that purpose so that we would understand that our lives that we live right now are not the ends, that there's a greater purpose to our existence than simply living and dying. And the Bible is very concerned with explaining to us what that purpose is and what the future holds. Christianity is basically about the end, things to come. There are things to come, things in store. And the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about this. One sermon isn't going to do this justice, and that's why I point you again to, we have a sermon resources section online that you can go to if you want to learn more. There are some books there that you could purchase on your own and learn a lot more than what I'm going to explain to you in one sermon. Also, we have a wonderful class that we offer that Joe Marin, one of our pastors in our church, he's doing Sunday school right now, but he has a fundamentals class. Sometimes those issues like that will come up, and he'll put more meat on the bones than what I'm going to give you today. Um, This is the final sermon, by the way. Um, uh, It's how we're going to close our sermon series that we've been calling Basically Jesus. And that sermon series has been about what the basic doctrines of Christianity are. What are the fundamental beliefs of Christianity? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about humanity, about sin, about salvation? There have been a number of sermons that we've preached on this. And again, to backtrack, you can go online and listen to those. But today we're, edi- we're ending the sermon series, I think, with probably the, the most fitting ending, is talking about things to come. What does the future hold for those who call themselves Christian and even those who are not? So we're going to look at four things today. There's a section in your, uh, in your bulletin where you can take notes if you're like that. But we're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at the prelude, the return of Christ, the completion, and our response. These are going to be four things that we're going to take in this order. The prelude to the end, the return of Christ, the completion, and our response. We're going to keep it simple. It's going to be as simple as these four things. Again, there's a lot of things that I'm leaving out and questions that you might ask. And if, and if you've been a Bible student for a long time, you might be thinking, well, what does he think about this or that? And I might not answer any of those questions. But for now, we're just going to look at these things. Before we dive into these four things, though, into these various components of God's planned future, we need to remind ourselves that the future that God has revealed to us is fixed. And what I mean by that is that there's no possibility that these things won't happen. So we have an assurance that what God reveals to us about the future is definite. They're fixed. God has a purpose for his creation, and his purpose is sovereign. And what I mean by sovereign is that it is authoritative. It is absolute, because God is the absolute authority 
it will absolutely happen. No one can meddle with his plan. Just like when the Old Testament promised that a suffering Messiah would come to die for sins, no one could interfere with that plan. Jesus came. Satan couldn't mess with it. Neither could we. That plan was fixed in the divine prerogative of God himself. Okay? When Jesus began to explain to his disciples what the end was going to look like, his disciples asked him, what's the sign of your coming? What will the end look like? When will it be? They were asking all these questions, and you can read these in almost all the Gospels, how Jesus answers these questions. But Jesus replies to them, when you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Luke 21, chapter, nine, ch- chapter 21, verse 9. These things must happen first because they're part of God's purpose and plan. God often tells us in the Bible what's he, what he's going to do before he does it. We call that prophecy. The future will of God, the, the, the purpose of what he's moving us all to, that part, that, that part of his plan that cannot be interrupted or interfered with. It must take place. Why? Why must it take place? There's a few reasons. Number one, because God does not change his mind. He won't say, I'm going to do this, and then when it comes time to do it, say, ah, never mind. I changed my mind. God does not change his mind. We're told that in Scripture. Okay? He does not change his mind. Number two, God doesn't lie. Kind of sort of is assumed with he doesn't change his mind, but he doesn't lie to us. He's not saying, I'm going to do this, but he really doesn't mean it. He's lying or, or deceiving us. God doesn't lie or change his mind. We learn that all throughout the scriptures. And God has proven to us throughout human history that he doesn't lie or change his mind. But there's more to it than that. Okay, you could say, all right, maybe God doesn't lie or change his mind. But may, is there someone stronger in the room that could potentially stop him from doing something that he intended to do? And the quick answer to that question is no. <laughs> God has unlimited power that, neither anything, that nothing in his creation shares, neither man nor woman nor beast nor angel nor Satan himself. Nothing can interfere with the determined purpose and will of God. So not these things might take place or these things we sort of wish they take place. No, these things must take place. For the grace of God in Titus chapter 2, in verses 11 and following, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The things to come, the appearing of Christ is called the blessed hope of the believer. Now hope in scripture is is not a wish like we use it today, like I hope I have cake after church, right? or I hope I get married one day. Hope is not a wish in Scripture. It is a confident expectation that what God promised will happen. Okay? So these things must take place. These things must take place. And the things that must take place, the end that is coming, has a prelude. And that prelude is happening now. How does God, what does God say about the condition of human progress as we we get closer to the end? There is a prelude. I have a copy of of the book The Hobbit. Have you guys ever read the book The Hobbit or seen the movie? 
right? So I have a copy of the book, The Hobbit, um, and it's described on my, I got a pretty old copy, and it's described as the enchanting prelude to the Lord of the Rings, right? And what does that mean? Well, The Hobbit is setting the stage for what's to come in that three-part trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, right? So any of you who have read it, you'll learn about characters, where the ring comes from, and all these different things that sort of are unsaid in in the the three-part series. So it concerns those events leading up to the series, right? In the Bible, the end of this age or the future has a prelude. Um, The end itself, when the end comes, it pictures various events and changes. These are all introduced by the, the appearing of Christ, but there's a prelude to his return. There are things that happen before Christ comes, And that is happening right now. And we can describe them in three ways. Our present condition until Christ comes is described in three ways. And some of this is good and some of of it isn't. Okay? We can call it rescue, trouble, and delusion. Rescue, trouble, and delusion. Until Christ comes, what we face in our daily lives as Christians and in the world that we live in is a rescue, a trouble, and a delusion. And let me explain to you what I mean by this, okay? Let's look at rescue first. So the the rescue first includes, excuse me, the prelude first includes a rescue. If Jesus is coming back, okay, if the ends, now this is something that we'll get to later, but the end of this age begins with the return of Christ. Now, if Jesus is coming back, what's the holdup? Why don't you just come back right now. Why, does it, why didn't he come back a thousand years ago? Now, 2,000 years have passed since Jesus resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven. That's, that's quite a long time. You know, Jesus, I'm kind of in pain. You know, lots of bad things, lots of wars have happened. Why doesn't Jesus just return? Have you ever asked that question? What's taking so long? Well, it's interesting because there, are, there were scoffers that were asking the same question when the apostle Peter was writing to a church. Isn't that interesting? Just 30 years. Now, we're 2,000 years in now. They were just 30 years and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Why hasn't he come back? Second Peter chapter 3 says this. Peter tells us why. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return for Christ to come back. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, what most scholars believe this means is that God has a purpose and plan for human history to save his people. And when that's done, he comes back. We don't know when it's done. It might be, a th- it might be 2,050 years. It might be 3,000. Nobody knows. But we know that in the meantime, part of the reason that Jesus delays is so that you, if you don't know Christ this morning, might hear the gospel message and be saved for when he comes. You see, the Bible is clear that when Jesus returns, humanity's fate is fixed. The final destination is unchangeable. 
when Christ returns or when you die, whatever comes first, your destiny, your fate is fixed in the life to come. Matthew 25 says it plainly, and this is, so, this is both encouraging and both terrifying at the same time. It says this, Then the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When Christ appears, according to Scripture, you see, Christ will either appear when you die, and you appear before him, or when he physically returns to this earth. So when Christ appears, we will either go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, or the, excuse me, the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment or eternal life. Eternal, some have called it eternal death or eternal separation from God. Scripture calls this hell versus heaven. It is eternal. It is a never-ending sentence. It is unchanged and it is a fixed destiny. The prelude, then, to Christ's return is mission, friends. Knowing the finality of our eternal fate when Christ returns, he delays so that you might have opportunity to hear the gospel, repent of your sin, and trust in the work of Christ for your own salvation. But he comes quickly, He's coming quickly, so friend, don't delay. Trust in Christ this moment. You see, the, re the, the prelude to the coming of Christ is a rescue. It's a rescue mission. It's the period of time that God allows lost sinners opportunity to be saved through their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So that slowness that you read about in Peter of Christ's return What's taking him so long? Well, we could see that as a gift. And I think we would see it as a gift, I think, only if we understood the horrors of eternal separation from God. If we understood that the only thing standing in the way of us and that final separation from God is our, is our small, thin, and fragile life, we would thank him for that space where he gives us to turn to him and repentant faith. The prelude to Christ's return is rescue. Number two, it is trouble. It's trouble. The Bible describes the period of time before his return as a time of trouble. And I know we don't like the sound of this, but can I get an amen? How many people know that the lives we live have trouble? They're heavy. And we also know instinctually that they shouldn't be. That there's, there's something wrong with the world that we live in. It's broken. So the Bible calls this a time of trouble in John, John chapter 6. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then we read again in Matthew 24, the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, when we talk about the ends we're talking about the end of this age. We're not talking about the end of everything as if we're, there's just this blank eternal nothingness. We're talking about the end of this age that we're in now. What will be, and the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Have you heard of those? Right? Nation will rise up against nation. Have you seen that? and kingdom, up against, kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You think that humanity, with all our knowledge and progress, would stop fighting each other. But we still do it. And we do it in even worse and more horrifying ways than we ever have. Because we're smarter now. So we can kill more people at the same time than, than we used to be able to. You see, a, 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 a tomahawk is a lot more effective than a double-edged sword. You see, friends, this is the, the end of the age. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But not only that, the, we're going to be fighting against the natural order. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. That The Bible says these are to increase. The closer that it gets to Christ's coming, we'll see those increase even. But this is not the end, Jesus said. This is just the beginning of birth pangs. This is the prelude. This is a sign that Christ is coming quickly. Jesus continues to describe the trouble that he, he laid out in Matthew 24. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give off light. There's almost like what he's describing is this universal pandemic that increases. And it's a natural tension. People die of disease and earthquake and monsoons and all these horrifying events. We just saw one decimate islands off our coast. See, see, it's a time of trouble. But wait, there's more. It's not just a natural, a natural time of trouble, the natural order of earthquakes and winds and all these different things. The condition of the human heart is fueled by wickedness and delusion. The prelude, then, is not just rescue, it's not just trouble, it's third, delusion. Deception gains momentum as a prelude to Christ's return. Many will come, this is what we just read in Matthew 24, many will come saying, I am the Messiah. Now that might sound cryptic and weird, but all it's saying is, Jesus is not Savior and Lord, you are. You don't need a Savior. He's not Messiah, you're Messiah, or I'm Messiah. Bill Gates, our next president, he'll save us. You see, Many will come in that day and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, you're the Savior, but Jesus is not. We, we see this so clearly that it says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Many false prophets will appear and they'll deceive many. What's the deception? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Have you seen love in the human heart decline towards their neighbor? Have you seen it in yourself? You know, in heaven, no one will have road rage. <laughs> you won't have road rage anymore. Right? Like, just think about it. I know I'm, I'm being a little bit silly, but the, those little s silly things that get us so upset, we won't experience those things anymore. First John explains, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. See, the deception that Jesus talked about, with many, the, many will say, I'm the Messiah, the deception, the principal deception isn't, you know, premarital sex, all these different things that Christian calls sin. I think it includes those, but the, the principal deception, it's not those things. It's not dark, dirty behaviors. It's that you don't need a savior, that you can save yourself that you're okay. 
You see, friends, the gospel says the exact opposite. It says that we are all lost in sin and that we can't save ourselves. It's so heinous against the holiness and righteousness of God that we stand separate from him. And the only solution, the only remedy is the Savior who died in your place. But the kingpin lie, the deception of Satan in Romans chapter 1, is that you don't need Christ, but you are to worship anything but him. Worship your wife, worship your kids, worship your job, worship your money, worship your feet. I don't know, whatever weird fetish you have. Just worship anything but Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's the, the, the deception that increases, the principal deception. It's the tension that exists as a prelude between now and the return of Christ. And that tension that is God's loving rescue and the increased tribulation and deception of humanity. Those things coexist um, until Christ returns. That's the human condition. That's the prelude to the return of Christ. But then, number two, he appears. In in a time unknown to us that the Bible doesn't reveal, reveal to us, at some point in the future, there is a fixed and determined plan of God that Christ will return that Christ comes back. And Jesus himself even promised this in John chapter 14. He says, I will come back and take you to be with me. I will come back just as you see me leave. You see, Jesus resurrected, according to the Gospels and Acts, Jesus resurrected from the dead, and then he went to the Father in heaven and left the apostles with the Holy Spirit. Okay, But before he goes, he says, I'm coming back. I'll return to you. John chapter 14 and many other places make this clear. In our text, he returns immediately after the distress of those days. That's what the Bible says. When does he come back? Immediately after the distress of those days. And in this is hidden an encouragement to you and I. You see, friends, the time of trouble has an expiration date. It's going to end when his feet step down on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah chapter 14, it ends. It's done. Praise God. This is not the sad, sorry state of humanity forever and ever until we explode ourselves into oblivion. You see, Christ comes back and he settles the matter. The time of trouble has an expiration date. We don't know when it is. I don't know, know when it is. But God knows what it, when it is. And he says it's coming quickly. And that I'm to spend every day looking for it. Because it could be today. When that day arrives, there is no delay. Jesus appearing marks the end, the conclusion of suffering as we know it. Trouble is not eternal. Isn't that a great promise? A great application. It's destroyed through that fire that comes out of his eyes that we read about in the book of Revelation. He ends it all. And when he comes, we're told three things about it. Okay, I want to talk about this. The return of Jesus, the appearing of Christ, is physical, imminent, and glorious. There are three things. When Christ returns, it is physical, it is imminent, and glorious. Revelation chapter 1, I think you might see this on your screens. It says, look... He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. So this this coming isn't some kind of phantom, invisible, he lives in our hearts kind of coming, right? Where he's not really here. No, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see, see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth 
will mourn because of him. We'll get to that in a moment. So shall it be. Amen. That's what scripture says. It's physical, number one. Every eye will see him. Jesus does not return mystically or spiritually. Jesus didn't return to us in the coming of the Holy Spirit, if you know anything about that in the book of Acts. His body, his actual person, his resurrected body, the Bible says, right now is in heaven with the Father. He's preparing a place for us. He's interceding for us. That's what Jesus is doing right now. But the Bible promises that when he returns, there's a fixed date in the future where there's no mistaking it. You'll, the Bible says that somehow every eye on earth will witness the return of Christ coming in the clouds. Zechariah chapter 14 even tells us where he's coming back on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. It says his feet touch down on the top, the top of the mountain and it splits in two. So he's coming with power. Okay? So Jesus' return is physical. It's imminent. And what that means is it's at any moment. It could happen at any time. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, it says in the Gospels. Therefore, keep watch. This is to us now. Watch. Keep watch. Because we don't know when Christ is going to come. But understand this. Jesus now gives us an example. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. You see the point? So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. It's imminent. It's at any moment. So if anyone writes a book that's called um, 2,035 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 2035, according to Scripture, you should immediately dismiss that book as heresy. Because Scripture tells us not anyone in this created universe knows the coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. So the return of Christ is physical, it is imminent, and finally it is glorious. Oh, how glorious it will be. There are so many wonderful passages of Scripture that I'd love to just read all of them to you right now, but I can't because of time. Consider, though, some of these, how the Bible describes what's going what's to happen to the universe when Jesus returns. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. A lot of people believe the sun will be darkened and the moon won't, won't um, give off its light, right? And the stars will fall from the sky. What this means, according to a lot of scholars, and I, uh, and I agree with it, is that the, the radiance of Christ's presence is so bright that you can't even see any other lights. So it's not that the sun got clicked, turned off. It's that Christ is so bright comparatively, you can't even see it. How many people have ever turned on a flashlight in a really bright room? You can't even see that thing, especially if it's you know, dim and it's losing its batteries, right? You, it's, it's worthless. The light, if it's a really bright room. It's, it's almost like the same thing. When Christ comes back, he demands our full attention. See, that's the point. The Bible says that he comes on clouds with power and great glory. Do you remember what Satan said? I will rise above the clouds of heaven. 
You see, he was a created thing trying to become God himself. Now Jesus is coming on those clouds that Satan said he would take from God. Isn't that great? Nah, 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 nah. Right? Satan loses. He doesn't win. He loses. He comes with power and glory and every eye will see him. Heaven and earth will flee, it says. And he will send his myriad of angels with a, with a loud trumpet call. Remember we talked about angels not that long ago? How many angels does God have? They're without number. Imagine the scene when Christ returns. Because he sends his angels with a loud trumpet call. That's his entourage. Center stage is Jesus Christ. To his left are the billions and trillions of created elect angels. And to his right is every person who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, clothed in white. And friends, I'm not making this up. This is in Revelation chapters 19 through 21. When Christ returns, his angels are to his left, his church is to his right, and he takes back what's his. Isn't that fantastic? The end of human history has a prelude. It begins with a birth... With, with the return of Christ and his appearing, as I just clued you into, has a purpose. What is he doing when he comes back? Does he want to try that new restaurant on Main Street? Is that what he's doing? It, right? Is he, come, is he coming because he really heard the tacos were good at that little lunch sack behind Dell's Lemonade? What's going on, right? What, what is Christ up to? You see, friends... When I, I'm going to use this one word to describe what he does. Completion. Finishes. Right? That's number three. The purpose of Christ when he comes is to finish. To complete. The end of an old age and the beginning of a new and never-ending one. Oh, and this is wonderful. Please listen to this. There is a completion first, a fullness of creation. Oh, I love this. This is gonna, if you have any hair left on your head, it's gonna pop the remaining follicles right off because it's so fascinating. You know what the Bible says heaven is? The Bible says that heaven is earth without sin. It's not some weird, we're floating in some weird kind of foggy nebula with, with kind of spooky, transparent angels. It's right, like that's kind of how we think, of, or we're in the clouds, if that's kind of how Hollywood helps us out with that one, where somehow we're sitting on a cloud and, and God's people are all around and we're playing harps. We think of it as this kind of like immaterial, non corporal, corporate, how do you say that word? Non physical, there you go. Non physical type of existence. But the Bible says that it is not that at all, that there's a new heaven and a new, new earth. But I get ahead of myself. Second Peter chapter 3, it says this The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That means that all of the created universe, the stars in the sky, the moon, the planets, and our planet itself, will be renovated. Okay? John tells us in the book of Revelation, he sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the former has passed away. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that the created universe itself groans because it wasn't just Adam and Eve or humanity that was affected by sin and broken by sin. This world was broken by sin too. This world is messed up too. 
the created world, the universe, the mountains, the volcanoes, all these different things, it's broken by sin as well. It, it is under God's curse because of sin. And the Bible says in Roman, Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage of decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. According to the Bible, heaven is the presence of God on earth. Now, we don't believe that, that this means, that this has been taught by some, I think, Christian cults and even some Christians, that there is some special class of Christian, if you did really good following Jesus in life, that you get to go into the, to the nebula, immaterial place where God is, and all the rest of us mediocre Christians, we get to go on earth. Right, So that, that place, that's like the special privilege place. The Bible doesn't teach that. Heaven is the presence of God, and it includes the, uh, a renovated universe. Isn't that incredible? Everywhere in the Old Testament, we're reminded that when God's kingdom comes, his rule is no longer resisted, his curse is no longer put on this earth or the universe, and it brings freedom to the bondage that sin has brought to the material world. So, for example, the lion lies with the lamb. Right? You can reach your, this is in Isaiah, you can reach your hands into the asp's den and not be harmed. So, nature isn't at war with itself anymore. Isn't that great? That means, I was, I was imagine, sort of picturing this, if this is true, if we're resurrected to eternal life, God renovates this earth, that means I get to still plant flowers in heaven. That means I can still have a dog or a cat. Except he won't bite me anymore. <laughs> right? God recreate. you see, it's what Adam and Eve lost that were given back. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful? You see, this is the prelude. That means that everything in life is sort of leading us to that better end. So why do we love this life more than that one? You see, Jesus says, love the kingdom to come. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Put your treasure in heaven. You see, love that life. Because everything you lose in this life, you get it back and better in the one to come. You see? The lion lays with the lamb. Man will not be harmed by the, the asp or the cobra. Even the trees are said to clap their hands at the coming of Christ when he comes to complete and renovate creation. But number two, the, the coming of Christ will be, the, will be the destruction of everything and everyone that is wicked. Now this is a hard reality that we as modern, even, uh, modern Americans don't often like to hear. But according to scripture, Everything and everyone that is wicked is finally and once and for all put to an end, completed, finished. That's why our text says, by the way, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Because the time for repentance is over. And their eternal destination is fixed. And it's too late. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. The final destination of Satan, of his fallen angels, and everyone that has not believed in the name of Christ, according to John chapter 3, is described, that final destination is described as an eternal punishment or the second death. Eternal, unchanging separation from God. Revelation chapter 20 says this, and the devil 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And each person was judged. Now he's, now he's looking at those who have rejected Christ as Savior. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, all of this, was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. It is final and it is irreversible. Now I know that the Bible gives a lot of imagery describing hell, fire, and we get confused. What does it mean? Will, will we be conscious or not? I'm not even going to try to answer those questions right now. All I'm going to say is this, that the wicked are forever separated from God. They lose eternal life. The destination is unchanging and unending, and it was unnecessary because God bids you now to trust and to believe him. The coming of Christ completes creation destroys the wicked, but here's the good news. It fills the righteous. It completes the righteous. Matthew chapter 24. Then they will go away, the righteous, to eternal life. So the wicked are, are separated from God, but the, but the righteous to eternal life. Oh no, bad news. Because Romans chapter 3 says there's none righteous, not even one. So how are, how's anyone going to go away? To eternal life. Then, the, then they will go away, the righteous to eternal life. If according to Paul there are none righteous, no, not one, is that a really empty room? Right? But friends, we read over and over in Scripture, to trust in Jesus is to have a foreign righteousness put on you, credited to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, when you put faith in Christ, we who are once unrighteous, far off from God because of sin, are drawn near to God and given the righteousness of Christ himself. Those are the righteous that inherit eternal life, not because we are inherently good or pure or perfect. None of us are, but Christ is, and he is our substitute. You see? For anyone in Christ, they will have a resurrected, perfected, completely pure and righteous body, an eternal and conscious life in the presence of God. We know that for sure. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself, listen to this amazing promise in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel Michael and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, and so will we ever be with the Lord. Isn't that great? To die in faith is to live an eternal life with Christ. That's the promise of God. That's the end that's to come. A new body resurrected an eternal bliss, eternal pleasure with our maker, our maker Jesus Christ. And his return could happen at any moment. So what should our response be? Let me just close with this. Titus chapter 2. How now shall we live knowing this? For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passion and to live self-controlled. Why? Upright and godly in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We were made for the next world, not for this one. So we spend our time living our Christian life 
not loving the world more than loving Christ. See, that sounds hostile. Aren't we supposed to love the world? Yes, but we're supposed to love Christ first. And you know what? When that happens, when you actually live for the life to come, you start to actually love this world rather than use it. You see, because if you're not living for the life to come, but you're living for the life now, then you're using everyone around you to make you happy, to fulfill you, to satisfy you. And that will either bring you great bliss because you'll get what you want or great misery when you lose it or when you realize when you get it, it didn't work. You see, friends, when you actually live for the life to come, you're freed to love the world as God intended and not to use it for your own advantage and gain. Amen? It frees us to serve the world rather than use it. To love God, to live for His supply, We won't expect his creation to be our supply, but God to be our supply. We won't become bitter when we lose something. We won't have have demands and be angry at God when he doesn't give us what we want. Oh, and friends, should you not know Christ, he is coming quickly, and he has given you space. He is being slow to return, not as we count slowness, But he is being slow, not as we count slowness, so that you might come to know and trust Jesus Christ. He's coming quickly. Don't take another day, another moment, another second. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be ready for his return. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this wonderful day that we get to reflect on these things. Thank you, God, that indeed you are coming quickly.